0: Support comes from Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the legendary series bids farewell after six extraordinary seasons. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine, throughout its groundbreaking run, The Crown has featured three acclaimed casts, earned an astounding 273 award nominations, and collected 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series at the Emmys. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. Starring Imelda Saunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. For your Emmy consideration in all categories.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become?
0: Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2.
1: Play it now with Game Pass.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 436th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actress and writer primarily of the comedy variety, who has excelled in an unusually wide variety of formats, from sketch comedy, she made her name on Fox's Mad TV from 1997 through 2002, to voice acting, most notably as the voice of Lois Griffin, among others, on Fox's Family Guy from 1999 through the present, to films, ranging from 2004's Catwoman to 2005's Night and Good Luck, to series TV. Most recently, Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on which she plays the bartender-turned-talent manager Susie Meyerson. A Golden Globe nominee, two-time SAG Award nominee, two-time Critics' Choice Award winner, and three-time Emmy Award winner, twice for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and once for Family Guy, Alex Borstein. Over the course of our conversation, the 51-year-old and I discussed how an early interest in stand-up gave way to a passion for sketch comedy— which led to her breakthrough gig on Mad TV, why she was unable to accept the part ultimately played by Melissa McCarthy on the TV series Gilmore Girls, but remained in touch with its creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, for decades thereafter, why in the mid 2010s she essentially quit show business and moved with her family to Spain, and how Sherman Palladino lured her back for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, plus much more. And so, without further ado, Let's go to that conversation. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to uh, see you. And I guess, can I ask you, where are you coming to us from? I, I know that you spend time all over the place. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, okay. So on this podcast, we do go back to the very beginning. And so I wonder if you would share where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
2: Um, I was born in Highland Park Illinois mm-hmm. which is a suburb a uh, northern suburb uh, my father is a psychologist a phd and my mother has had many professions at the time of my birth she was a, a mother that yes. was her full-time position
0: and you are one of several right quite uh, of how, how many kids? children three kids um, two older brothers yeah and I wanted to ask you about about that because and just about the kind of family unit because you often hear of of course about how so many people who get into the world of comedy sort of started in the home trying to make you know bring some levity to often difficult situations and I understand that you know you that might have been the case for for you as well
2: I think yeah I think it was twofold I mean I think being the youngest naturally, you have to fight for attention. So I think that plays a role and being the only girl. And and my older brother, the middle child, Evan, is a hemophiliac. My mother is what we called back then a low level carrier, as am I. Nowadays, they would say that we are actually hemophiliacs because our clotting factor is so low. But in those days, we weren't afforded that diagnosis. So, um, but my brother had, um, hemophilia growing up that expressed with a lot of injuries, a lot of hospital time and a lot of tension. And I think, I think, yeah, my role, I kind of became trying to, trying to break that tension all the time with, with comedy, but, but the whole family is pretty funny. I mean, our dinner table, you know, you got to be pretty sharp tongued and quick witted, uh, my oldest brother, Adam, is is very sharp, very funny, very quick-witted. So we all kind of played the game, but I think I became more, uh, I don't know, more needy as a result of it, which neediness usually translates to comedy.
0: <laughs> well, and it, it seems like the, the women of generations ahead of you and your family might have also had some impact on shaping who you are. I guess that would be for anybody, but particularly, can you talk about, I mean, the... I, I preparing for this read that your grandmother went through some some tough stuff. of course, uh, your your mother and you you you've said are very different kinds of people, and so it kind of uh, made you feel there were certain roles that were already occupied. so you should maybe play another one. just how how did those your your mother and your grandmother shape you, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean my my mother and grandmother are from Budapest, Hungary. Um, they're very Hungarian. All Hungarians (laughs) out there will know what I mean. Um, But they, you know, they had, they survived the Holocaust, which really alters your DNA. My mother later in life went back to school and, and became a therapist as well. And her thesis was about the effects of trauma on children Mm. of traumatic events. And particularly her, her thesis was about children of the Holocaust. And it really, it alters your DNA forever. And, mm. and the rest of your, the chain that kind of continues from there is forever altered. So they were in in many ways. My, yeah, my grandmother survived uh, the Holocaust by kind of stepping out of line, as I, I talked about. Um, yes. She was in line to be shot. I think, you know, I think when I gave that speech and talked about it, I was so riled up. And I think I said a pit, but the, it's the Danube River that they were... Mm. But she, she survived. She, she stepped out of line and she survived, my, my mother and her cousin who was with her, who was 10 years old at the time. I think after that, they were very serious and very tightly wound. And that's, that stuck with them for a very long time. And it wasn't till after emigrating to the United States, coming as refugees um, from Hungarian Revolution... 56, 57, Mm -hmm. um, which right now, everything that's going on with Ukraine, you know, is, 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 it's just very interesting. History continues to repeat itself in so many ways, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't until after they settled in the U S and after they kind of slowly came into their own, that their personality started to emerge. And my grandmother was very funny, very became very darkly comedic as a result of what she survived. And my mother too, this very, they're very bold, very loud, and also <laughs> dark. There's no edit button right. with them. The They equate uh, criticism with honesty. <laughs> honesty <laughs> is criticism. Criticism is honesty. Right, right. But they were just amazing women, bold, mm-hmm. funny, sharp and survivors to this day, just kind of scrappy.
0: Now you, in terms of your your mother, you've described her as kind of a, a real like ladies lady. And that that meant that for you, you felt that you better find your own niche, right?
2: Yeah, they were very much, my grandmother was the Hungarian queen and my mother was the <laughs> Hungarian princess and there was no room <laughs> for me. I became the court jester. Um, mm-hmm. They, Yes. My mother was stunningly very beautiful with with no effort, never exercised a day in her life and was like (laughs) a size six or an eight, you know, weighed 118 pounds her whole life and just exuded style. And and it was very natural. My grandmother always had her hair and her shoes were pristine. She said that was the most important. (laughs) So. Yeah, you know, you kind of fill roles that no one's taken yet in a family. And I realized, okay, I don't think I can compete with this. <laughs> so what can I do? And it was, you know, I think it was refreshing. Actually, my mother, I think, found it kind of amazing. And she, she, in some ways, envied the freedom I have from that. But my father, I think it was really he just did not understand me for a very long time. He thought, <laughs> a girl, I finally have a girl, pink tights and bows and dresses. And I think the first story he likes to tell, there's a picture he took me to a family member's wedding, or maybe it was a bar mitzvah at a very young age. I was maybe six years old and little pink tights and a dress and all cuted up. And I think I said F you at the bar <laughs> like it was like you know I completely embarrassed him and set the stage for what was to come at a very very early age so it took him a long time to kind of figure me out
0: right and and I guess like like you know many people at first really started to manifest itself in school you were you were kind of the funny kid in class
2: yeah I the neediness kind of <laughs> oozed <laughs> out into the school hours um yeah, I could not leave anything alone. You know, I always had to kind of have a biting comment. I was very lucky that that most teachers I had found a way to kind of incorporate it and use it. And uh, there were some that didn't. And sometimes I was completely out of line and inappropriate. And, <laughs> but then I think at about seventh grade, we started kind of filtering funneling me towards like, how can we, what do we do with this energy? What do we do with this mouth and her need? And, and theater, this theater camp kind of became a huge part of my life. First, I think the first play I did was in day school. So it was probably fifth grade or something. And then I went to a Jewish camp and we did Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I <laughs> got cast as Joseph. Um <laughs> And that was kind of like the beginning of seeing like, oh, there might be a place for this,
0: where, where to put all of this. Now, it, 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 I guess how, though, at such a crazy young age, 16, I read, you're, you're already doing stand up for, you know, basically a, a paid gig. Um, most 16 year olds, I don't even think really understand what stand up is. How for you did that become a, a possible vehicle for this uh, energy that you're talking about?
2: You know it was like I think I realized okay being on stage is the one place where I'm not going to get in trouble for mouthing off and the quickest way to get on stage is a solo act which is stand up you know not having to wait for a summer program wait for the school play wait to audition it felt like how, how do I how do I do this myself and that was kind of the first the first thought I think I did I think I did a tiny bit of quote unquote stand-up at school once they had like a talent show and I tried it there and it, it kind of worked. <laughs> and so then I went to this place that was in Chatsworth, California, um, called Gallagher's not owned by the Gallagher, mm-hmm. just the same name. And <laughs> right. it was literally in like the basement it was on the ground <laughs> floor of a Ramada Inn. It was just a bar and they had an open mic night and I, talked to the, the owner into letting me perform and my parents had to come cause it was 21 and over. Uh, I think the audience was predominantly my family, some <laughs> bar patrons, but they paid me 20 bucks. And the funny story is, that's only one of like three standup gigs I've ever been paid for.
0: Really?
2: <laughs> Honestly, like every other time it's been like open mics or scrambling or some other related to some other event. I, I very rarely was paid for stand-up. So.
0: That's so funny. Well, you mentioned that that was in California. At what point – so the family moved to California?
2: Yeah. Family moved from Chicago to L.A. I think my mother's quote was, if I have to put winter clothes on these fucking kids one more time, <laughs> I'm going to kill somebody. Um, so I think I was about 10, 9, 9, I think 9 years old when we moved – out to california my, my dad's sister was out there so he kind of felt like this this would be the right move be closer to some family and mm-hmm. better weather and it was jarring it was a very i didn't know at the time but it was a really difficult move it was a hard time to move
0: now you've said, you know, just now that you didn't, there wasn't tons of standup in, in your life after that thing at, at 16 or even at, at school. And I guess that seems like it was partly because not long after that you discovered sketch comedy. And I wonder if you can talk about how, you know, maybe specifically just how that became an option for you uh, because, and people should understand this is I believe in in your case totally different. So we're not talking improv, we're not talking like this was scr- written sketch comedy.
2: Yeah, I mean I went to university, I went to San Francisco State University and I started doing some stand up in the student commons and and the depot they had there and I submitted to a comedy contest they had which here's a fun fact, Margaret <laughs> Cho lied and pretended she was a student to get in the competition and <laughs> won. I remember meeting her and thinking she was great. And like then later read, read interviews with her where I was like, she wasn't even a student. Um, that's, that's great. But I did some stand up there and some guy, um, a guy named Jeffrey Anderson, who is now a movie reviewer, a movie critic. Jeff Anderson came up to me after one of the stand-up shows and he said, hey, I'm trying to start a sketch comedy group here. Would you be interested? And I had never done sketch, but I said, yes, I would love it. Like, And we started this group. The name that he chose for the group was The Virus, which, <laughs> you know, at a very liberal university was maybe not the best choice, but we caused a lot of problems. We did some very some very interesting things that got a lot of attention. We we were very political about what was going on on campus. And then he, the group changed. He left. I took over. We renamed it 25% off and we started doing sketch. <laughs> and I realized I loved it. I loved, I loved doing comedy with other people. It was so nice. It wasn't as lonely. You're not waiting around stand-up clubs. So after I graduated, I moved back t- down to Los Angeles. And then I started a master's program, and at the same time, uh, my brother and I enrolled at a place called Acme Comedy Theater, which was an improv, and they were actually improv classes that we took, but then once you auditioned for the company, it was written sketch. So our teacher there was a woman named Cynthia Segetti, who has since passed on, but she strongly encouraged both of us to audition for the group. and. We did. I got in the first try. My brother got in the second try and then we started doing sketch comedy every weekend. And it was like pay to play. You paid mm-hmm. dues. I think it was $125 a month to get to perform. The only audience was my parents most nights. Um, it was on La Brea Boulevard in LA. It was called Acme Comedy Theater. And I did that for, for a few years. And it was it was some of the best times of my life. It was incredible. I met lifelong friends I met was who is now my Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ex-husband a writing partner that I started working with there um it was it was like the best learning ground
0: ever were were you getting support or skepticism from your parents at that point having gone through uh school and I guess as you say started a master's I mean this was this what did they think about this as a long-term prospect for you
2: my father,
0: you know, always said
2: like, you gotta have something else to fall back on. You can't depend on this. You can't, you can't. And I had majored in rhetoric and thought, you know, I, I thought I did the LSATs. I thought maybe I'll do a law. And really all I wanted to do was stand up and perform in court. Like I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just saw the performing side of it, but quickly realized I don't want to do this. And then I actually, um, started an internship at a small advertising agency and kind of liked that. I I got to do copywriting, a little bit of account work. I liked the writing and it also helped me, you know, writing an ad, a copy line is a lot like crafting a joke. You got to get in, you got to be succinct, hit all the right buttons. It's all rhetoric. It's the art of persuasion. And so it was also good training. So my father was very happy that while I was doing sketch, I was also had an advertising job, a day right. job. <laughs> and my mother was a little bit more like, you're the best. There's no <laughs> one else better than you. Don't don't even worry about backup. That you're the best. You know, she was always my biggest cheerleader. Um that's great. So they were wildly, wildly supportive.
0: And and I guess it was in the course of doing something with Acme that you kind of uh wound up with the first thing that I remember knowing you from as a, as a kid, it was one of the things I look forward to the most, which was mad TV. Uh, Can you talk about how, how did ACME lead to that uh, opportunity? Which, and, and also I just want to say for listeners who maybe missed it or weren't around or whatever, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I, I kind of describe it is it was like SNL for younger, slightly younger people. Generally, I guess it was a half hour earlier on Saturday nights. It was, I know you guys had about half the budget per show, um, not entirely live, but largely live. So, anyway, just how how you wound up there?
2: Actually, the very first um, professional gig I had before Mad TV was doing voiceover for the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, uh. <laughs> which which I got by doing a. A, a play at the Jewish Community Center. Just, <laughs> I wanted to be in a musical, and I auditioned for Working by Studs Terkel. And one of the guys who was in it happened to run the Loop Group for that. So that was the very first actual paid gig that I had, which
0: and voiceover work, huh? Had you and ever? Never, yeah. Wow. Had you ever had people said to you already at that point you have a particularly uh, memorable voice?
2: No, I had never even heard of it. I didn't know what a Loop Group was. I. I started just doing little voices and background things in group and then he had me audition for Queen Machina, one of the villains, and I got the part and that was like I realized this is incredible. This is a whole other world and it doesn't matter what you look like and so that was actually the first, but then Mad yep. TV happened when some of us I I would go to these comedy festivals Even if I wasn't invited, I would show up. I would submit, (laughs) try to get in as a stand-up, like to the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. Didn't get in, but I went anyway. And then would just meet people and watch all the comedy I could. And I met a woman who, I believe it was Joy Goring, who was talking about Austin, Texas. And they were starting an improv and sketch comedy festival there. And she got my info and I got her info. And lo and behold, it was happening and i got four other people together from acme comedy theater and we submitted ourselves and and we got in and we went you know we you, you're flying yourself everywhere you're putting yourself up in the hotel it's 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 all pay to play at this point and you're just hoping and it was some of the best times i've ever had it was so much fun and all of us were you know there were six of us i think shoved in a hotel room and we had cots and air mattresses and we performed, we did like four shows there and the casting people from Mad TV saw us in Austin, Texas at the big stinking international improv comedy festival. It was called <laughs> BS. And we all five got auditions. It's funny because they, the casting office is about a half a mile from where Acme Comedy Theater is in LA, but they'd never seen us there. It took being in Austin, Texas awesome. that right. they saw us. And, and we all got auditions. And I think, I really think that like my physical type was something they didn't have. You know, they kind of already had their cute blonde and they had this and that. And they were like, hmm, look at this doughy little brunette. <laughs> and I got really lucky and I got in. And I think that was 97.
1: We took it all. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, so I was going to ask you,
0: what did it mean to you to get that opportunity? Because I guess they've been, I think, on since 95. So they were not new, but they were still finding their audience. What, what did, uh, was it a huge deal for you?
2: Oh, it was massive. And it was the audition process took over a month. I mean, it was six auditions, all these callbacks. And I remember waiting. Uh, me and a group of people went to this Mexican restaurant and it was kind of like waiting time and i was scheduling events to to distract me from waiting for the news and i think at, at that Mexican restaurant i heard the news that that i had gotten the part and they took on several of us at once to test us they made like this you know temporary deal to see how we would we would do and it just so happens that a girl I knew from that theater camp that I was in in seventh grade, Lisa Kuschel, and I both got cast on Mad TV the same season, and that was kind of amazing. Um, it it meant everything. I mean, I I, I couldn't believe that I was going to be paid to do this. I was going to not be paying one hundred and twenty five dollars <laughs> a month anymore. I was going to be paid. I was stunned
0: right well you know we can remind folks I guess you were there 97 to 2002 so yeah, really five the, seasons uh, five seasons and and uh everyone from you played everyone from Chelsea Clinton to Rosie O'Donnell and uh before I ask you about the character that you are most associated with I have to ask you about the one who I still just when I think about it as I was of course doing prepping for this I just die laughing and that, is Jasmine Wayne Wayne this one half Aww. of a <laughs> one so half bad. of a dis- dysfunctional singing duo? The other half is Will Sasso's Michael McLeod. These two are—it's uh, <laughs> basically like a BH1 type behind the music or whatever. And these guys have a hit song or, or wannabe hit song. You are the love of my life. This—I don't know why. I can't pinpoint why it's so funny, <laughs> but it is. I just died laughing at it. I think it's funny because of Will Sasso, but it is one of my most favorite things
2: I have done on that show. We, Will is like my brother, you know, we adore each other and we're still very, very close. And that was born out of, you know, that year, I think Titanic was winning everything. And every second, so you watch the broadcast every 30 seconds, you heard near, far, and the winner is near, far, and the winner is near, far, wherever. And I started thinking about like, God, the people who wrote that song are just ka-ching, ka-ching. Yes. And that I started riffing on the idea and I started kind of coming up and I brought it to Sasso and he really liked it. And then we brought it to the writer, Gary Campbell. And he really liked it. And we all sat in the room and kind of riffed. And the song was just something we just completely made up in the (laughs) moment and and could not stop. And Gary is the one who shaped it into, at the time, those behind the musics were really popular. He was like, how do we deliver this? And so he thought... (laughs) You know, what if we fast forward to whatever happened to these people and why they <laughs> disappeared and what you do when you're a one-hit wonder like that, you play it and play it and play it and play it. <laughs> but it really is like we still get people all the time writing us that they are that's their first dance at their wedding. Oh my god. <laughs> like people are like they love it and I think that's that's a pretty uh, good sense of humor if a, if a bride is going to allow that. Yeah. I'm all for the
0: marriage. <laughs> It was great. Well, the one, though, that I think probably, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure the one you get asked about the most and people reference the most is Mrs. Swan, who is a uh, manicurist at the gorgeous, pretty beauty nail salon with uh, limited command of the English language. I got to ask you similarly just how where she came from. And, you know, I think... Maybe just even to kind of clarify, because, of course, there are people who particularly in in hindsight of the way we everybody now looks back at everything and and reassesses it. they're they're trying to, you know, was this yellow face? Was this whatever? I know you've actually said there were other inspirations, although she was originally called Mrs. Kwan. So just what was this is such a wacky character. And we all laughed at, at, at the time. So just what what went into it?
2: Well, first, I'll correct you. She's Ms. Swan. Ms. Swan, excuse she me. Belongs to no one. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the birth of Ms. Swan actually was at Acme Comedy Theater. And her original name, the the sketch title, was The Other Gabor. Uh, and it was pretty, it's not even based on, it's a ripoff of my grandmother. It is the whole birth, the whole meaning behind her. She's She's an immigrant. And she's kind of that every immigrant, which is what I always heard from everybody. Oh my God, that's my grandmother. Oh my God, that's my aunt. Oh my God, that's my great aunt. And, and it it was like, that's my Greek aunt. That's my, it was everybody who had, who had that. You know, I think when Nia Vardalos did my big fat Greek wedding and she had someone on the screen talking about using Windex as a (laughs) cure-all, that just was exactly the same experience. So that's what she was born out of. She was born out of my grandmother's experience coming here with limited English, but quickly learning English, but then realizing it suited her sometimes to know less <laughs> English. Um, and you know, then when I when I auditioned with it at Mad TV, it at the time we were not allowed to write our own sketches you were, you had to bring your ideas into the room. Later that changed. After two years that I was there, we got to, they made some special deal with the Writers Guild so we could actually write. But we would have to go in and work with, which which often was great because it opened up your piece. You had another set of eyes and another great comedic brain working with you. And, And that's what I did with Swan. I worked with two other writers that were a team. And how do we bring this? How do we make this? tv ready and sketch ready which i didn't know so much about like what does a recurring sketch character require and part of that is having a catchphrase having a line having you know my grandmother's profession what i pitched was she worked she, she used to sew wigs she made wigs for orthodox women mm-hmm. when she first emigrated to new york and that's just not recognizable and doesn't make any sense and <laughs> that morphed into manicure and she very quickly became Miss Swan with a very different look and I was there for it I there were many hands in the kitchen but we didn't really we didn't really even think twice about taking care of what what nationality she was projecting initially we yeah her name was Quan and then I think there were some they do like name searches or name things. And they said, we can't do that. And then she became Swan. And it just, that's exactly how she just came. And then the, the wardrobe department found the smock when we decided to make her, a uh, uh, do mani petties with these feet on it. And it was, it already existed. I think they rented it from a, a, a costume rental place and we loved it. So then I they, they like kept it, you know, we bought it and It just kind of grew into that, and of course now it's like you can't fucking do that. You gotta (laughs) be, you have to be so careful about what you're what you're portraying and what you're expressing. And like, would I do that now? God
0: no! Like that. that Because just to like dissect it, it's not that the it's not the the reason you wouldn't or you would make it. You would more define who the character was or change something about it? Or, or you just, yeah, think you can, I mean, yeah.
2: now if I were to, to, to craft that, I'd be like, no, let's just completely make her, let, let's have her work in a, this wig factory and let's have, let's go for this, this authenticness and let's keep her, let's push towards Hungarian. I mean, the Hungarian, you know, history is Hungarian Mongolian, but clearly that's just, I think the, the biggest problem is at the time we did Swan, there was no other representation on our show. There was no other Asian American faces on our show or even on our writing staff. And like, that's the core of the problem. There's zero representation in front or behind the screen. You can't, you can't fucking do that. It's not, it's not okay. And it, it, it never even, it didn't even occur to me. It really felt like it really felt like this is such a funny character and the immigrant experience and relatable and recognizable. And that's why it felt like let's, this is why this is kind of working and just never dawned on me that. And of course now there's this massive influx of just Asian hate and, and violence. And I, I, it kind of breaks my heart if I in any way, contributed or or if it looks as though i never I, I don't know it just it really does break my heart it's and it, it sucks but i i do love swan the heart of her i love her and she comes from a place of love and never we never we never laid into any asian stereotypes huh. that that i don't think i mean um But still, I guess just it's enough to portray somebody that's working as a manicurist or, you know, it's it's not cool if you don't have the representation. And yeah.
0: But I mean, hey, the fact that that, that, you know, people hear you saying that, I think is going to would mean a lot if it did bother them. So, I mean, and the other thing to, I think, bring up here is that you weren't in some ways being treated very nicely either, from what I understand, in the sense that there wasn't. Pay equity between the men and women on Mad TV <laughs> at that time, right? No, there was not. I found that out so late in the game, and kind of couldn't believe it. That's crazy, and that obviously yeah. wouldn't wouldn't necessarily, I would think, would not fly today. The other thing is that, um, you know, this show, I, I, as much as people like me and many others loved it, I guess was was always kind of under the threat of being canceled just because it was, the, I guess ratings, uh, challenged. Right. Um, and you know, you know, interestingly enough, we were ahead. We always won in urban areas. So
2: New York, LA, Detroit, I forget which cities we would win all those nights. SNL was kind of suburban living rooms Mm -hmm. and mad TV was more of an urban audience. And we, we actually consistently did, we did pretty damn well and we had no budget (laughs) And very little promotion. There was just like really no promotion. We had no outlets for for movies that were made afterwards. There was no Lorne Michaels at the helm, kind of fanning the fire. So,
0: well, and and to just emphasize that point, I I couldn't believe this, but throughout the entire run of Mad TV, you couldn't get representation, right?
2: No, I had no agent. <laughs> I could not get an agent to save my life. So was, how uh,
0: like mid run because I think it was mid you know starting fairly early in your time there you that's when your tenure which is still ongoing I think there had been a brief interruption when when people canceled uh, the show but then it came back Family Guy started for you during Mad TV right
2: yeah it was actually the one of the showrunners on Mad TV um, was a guy named Adam Small. It was Adam Small and Fax Bar. Adam was married to Leslie Collins Small. She worked for Fox Network. And she had developed the show and brought it in. She was really a genius with Late Night. She really had her finger on the pulse. She found this kid out of Rhode Island School of Design or whatever, RISD, (laughs) named Seth (laughs) McFarlane. Right. Who had this animation piece he had done as a thesis project. She knew it was magic. And she originally tried to get it on Mad TV, actually. It was going to be interstitials like Tracy Ullman did for oh The Simpsons. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she wanted. And Seth was, thank God, so smart. He was like, mm, I think I should own this and not do that. And <laughs> he he stuck to his guns and rightfully so. She, she came up to me at an event and said, Hey, you know, you. Do you do voiceover? And I was like, sure, I'll do anything. <laughs> um, and she asked if I would help out with this pilot presentation. And so I met Seth at this recording studio. I'd never met him before, and they brought the drawings of Lois Griffin. And at the time, I was still doing Acme Comedy Theater, even while I was at, at on Mad TV. And one of the sketches I was doing there was called Magic Man, written by Jeff Lewis about a nice Jewish boy, who a stockbroker, who comes home and tells his parents he is no longer going to be a stockbroker, then he wants to be a magician. <laughs> and I played his mother, who had a... I, I used a red wig. She wore a little apron, glasses. And I would say, okay, so you, you want to become a magician, but you're still going to be a stockbroker, right? <laughs> No, mom, I'm I, I'm leaving. Okay, but you're still gonna be a stockbroker, right? It was kind of the very Jewish experience of of, of right. letting your parents down. Um, <laughs> and so I said to Seth, "I'm like, what about this voice?" And he was like, "That's kind of cool, but can you speed it up? It's too slow." It was, which that voice is actually also a ripoff of one of my Hungarian relatives. It's it's a cousin of mine in Long Island. <laughs> who shall remain nameless Um, really all of my greatest hits are just stolen from my family basically (laughs) um but yeah that's kind of how it was born and then the pilot got picked up Mm -hmm. and then they told me fox wasn't sure that they wanted to keep me so they made me audition again (laughs) and they auditioned everybody on the planet uh and then I mean I eked by. Seth fought very hard to to, oh my to God. get me the role.
0: So it's like twenty-three years later, it's unimaginable that uh you wouldn't be the voice, but I guess and it's not just Lois Griffin, we should remind people. I think most most episodes you're doing like five voices, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's usually about five voices. Whatever, whatever works. And it's it's been everything. I mean, it's little boys, it's it's old women, it's I was Trisha Takanawa for a while, which we're not doing anymore. Yes. <laughs> um and that it's funny, the Trisha Takanawa voice was a mad TV sketch we did that was called Windstorm. And I played a, a news correspondent reporting on the windstorm. Mm-hmm. And and she was not Asian at all, but the exact same voice. And when Seth was, they were creating that character, Seth said, Do that voice, do that. Just come and do this and do that same voice you did on Mad TV. That was so funny. And so that's how that was born. Um, but yeah, and I do Babs, Peter Schmidt, the grandmother. And like I said, anything, whatever they need, yeah. I'll try it.
0: Well, and and you've obviously, you've worked with Seth a lot on other stuff as well. American Dad, Cleveland Show, then movies, Ted and Million Ways to Die in the West. You have said that he, and, and I, it's hard to dispute this based on his, uh, you know, success and starting in his 20s when you were first working with him. I mean, you've said you think he's a genius. Can you pinpoint what makes him so good?
2: He really is. I mean, his capacity to retain knowledge to begin with, is phenomenal. I've never seen anyone kind of have the ability to immediately pull on on a piece of knowledge that he has um, in so many categories, uh, science, music, literature, history. He's so well read and he's he's got a perfect ear in music. He can play any instrument he picks up. Uh, he can really do any voice. If he wanted to do Lois, he could. I mean, he's (laughs) phenomenally talented. When, when we used to have in-person table reads to watch him switch between his characters without taking a breath. I mean, I can do it, but I take a beat. I mean, he, he's just phenomenally talented. I'd say the only thing he really can't do is maybe dance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> although maybe he started learning that but but really it's like you know or football or some right. some type of aggressive sport is not right. his thing but but really he's just he's just it's it's mind-boggling what
0: he's what he's able to do well you guys have have done so much great stuff together and i, I just find oh my it God. yeah the
2: craziest thing just happened what's that he just texted me <laughs> this second well there we just go just texted me
0: that's hilarious that
2: is the craziest thing <laughs> that
0: he was he's been on this podcast too i think it was it's uh, a shirt that's Thanks. i just got chills cuz we have
2: not <laughs> spoken in a long time and it's a text about linda lavin
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was she just then she oh, she about was just alice Oh, yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah. That is so weird. I'm sorry. No, that's great. Regain my senses. Okay,
0: I'm back. No, I was just going to say, I think it's the amazing, one of the amazing things about your story is how one little thing could have prevented you from, if you hadn't kind of bet on yourself to go to that Austin festival where Mad TV came out of, there's no Mad TV. Then if you hadn't uh, been doing Mad TV, there's no Family Guy. And then if you hadn't been doing Family Guy, there's no relationship with the Paladinos, which I want to ask you to talk about, because I believe it was quite early in the run of Family Guy that you first hear about this couple, right?
2: Yeah, I, I really do see my career as like this, you know, exercise in quantum physics. It's it's like it's these tiny parallel universes that all could have happened if if that chain had been broken, and it's. At Family Guy, one of the writers was a gentleman named Daniel Palladino, and he then rose in the ranks. He became the, the he ran the writers' room, was one of the showrunners, and he was my boss when I was writing on Family Guy. He ran the room, and- which I don't
0: want to gloss over. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you became a writer on Family Guy because when you showed up there doing Lois. There's nobody there's no women writers to say, like, this is how you probably should write a woman character. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Seth
2: was 25 and his <laughs> his interpretation of women and what we sounded like was hilarious. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I improvised a lot. And Chris Sheridan was the first one of the writers to say, hey, who now runs Resident Alien? Uh, he was the first to be like, you should write for this show. And I said, well, I've only written sketch um, and some animation. I wrote daytime animation. I did Pinky and the Brain and Casper. And he's like, that's all anybody else. It's the same thing. You should do this. And so he brought me in. Dan Palladino was my boss. And while I was in the room and writing for it, he came to me one day and he said, hey, you should read my wife's pilot. And I was like, "What? Well, why? Just... <laughs> <laughs> you should read it here here and it was called Gilmore Girls and I didn't really understand why and I read it and was like wow this is really cool this is a whole universe and he's like you should you should audition for Suki. I was like what? You should audition for this. I said but I'm still working at Mad TV. We don't know if we've been picked up again but he's like you can do that first position audition for this second pos- and I did and for a while it looked like they were going to let me do both. But at the time, the WB and Fox were in a huge pissing contest. <laughs> and at the last minute, they wouldn't, Fox said, no, you can't do this. And it was heartbreaking. It. I think the WB had agreed to shoot me on Sundays and Mondays to do it. And they wouldn't let me do it. And I was heartbroken. And Amy was too. And they, they wrote other parts for me to do. I did I played Drella, the mm-hmm. harpist, and then I played mm-hmm. Miss Celine, and whatever they needed, I would do because I just think they're wildly talented. So,
0: well, and it was clear kind of that story obviously that. no, and and I mean, first of all, I again this alternate universe—that's the part right that ended up being the kind of beginning of Melissa McCarthy.
2: Yeah. Then Melissa d- took it.
0: Yeah, and and then for for you, it was these recurring parts on on Gilmore Girls. It was then, uh, later on with a a few, uh, episodes of Bunheads, which was a shorter lived Mm -hmm. show for the Palinos. But, um, I think it was also, you, you've said that you started getting representation, I guess, through Gilmore Girls. Here's what happened.
2: When I auditioned for Gilmore Girls, a producer on that show named Gavin Pallone was in the room and followed me out to the parking lot we were waiting to see it was it was a total no-no for him to talk to me he came (laughs) out to the parking lot and he crossed his arms and he said how the fuck are we gonna get you out of mad tv and i was like is this a mind fuck like did i get the part i don't know yet like they were still auditioning people in the other room and i didn't know what to think and and i'm like is this the casting couch is he gonna ask me (laughs) to do something filthy and no it was genuine and he He was a huge fan. He championed me. And when it didn't happen, and I couldn't do it. He then said, I want to develop with you and wrote a pilot with him and a woman named Maya Forbes that was called Life at Five Feet, which I'm so proud of. Never saw the light of day. We actually got, we sold it and we shot the pilot and Patty Lapone played my mother. I, I want to get a hold of it because I'd love to yeah. show it. Um, yeah. I, it. It's not embarrassing. I think it's still a great piece of work. And, and we came very close. We flew to New York for the upfronts and we thought we were going to be on the air. And at the last minute, they said, nope, maybe mid season. And then it never happened. And that's, that was my true, like, ah, this is show business.
0: I've been so
2: lucky up till now gone (laughs) from job to job. So that was kind of the next piece of work, you know, that I got was that, and then bunheads and then A couple other pilots, something called. Oh, you know what was interesting? We did a pilot called The Thick of It Mm -hmm. that was the first US version of the British show that was Armando Iannucci, that was written by Mitch Hurwitz, directed by Christopher Guest, and did not make it to air.
0: That's crazy. That's crazy. They didn't
2: pick us up, and then it became Veep.
0: That was the next. So So it was the original. Crazy. Isn't that crazy?
2: You're like, how is this not happening? But
0: that's <laughs> that's the business. Um, and we should say that in in, in between uh, Gilmore Girls stuff and Bunhead stuff, you were getting into movies for the first time, really as well. People, there's uh, the Principal and Lizzie McGuire movie, the best friend of Halle Berry's character in Catwoman, the oh, CBS, yes. <laughs> which that's I'm going to ask one. you, then <laughs> and, and then the CBS news employee and George Clooney's. Night and Good Luck, which gets nominated for Best Picture Oscar. I guess you've experienced so many different forms of of this business from doing solo voice acting to uh, sketch comedy in in front of live audiences to, you know, this film. I've
2: been phenomenally lucky. I mean, that's that's just what you hit on. The, 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 The variety of stuff that I've gotten to do is so rare. You know, George Clooney cast me in that. It's a very small part, but it was important and it was... A really special experience I mean he's a phenomenal director he is so collaborative interested in what his actors have to say he hires people that he he wants to hear what they have to say he's he's hiring minds not just performances and, and that was really something that was a great learning curve for me and I loved every second of that um, Catwoman too was like a great lesson in, I, I i have a feeling that that was a little bit cart before the horse. I think they, I think they had to start shooting before they really had a script they loved because Hallie was available. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I think I recall. And, and everyone wanted this to be so great. And it was, it was just kind of lost in its own translation. I don't, I don't know, but God, it was so much fun to make. And,
0: I did read that there was a, uh, it was fun, except for maybe one day was a little weird. (laughs) Is that true? Oh
2: God, yes. The hospital scene. (laughs) I I didn't know that you could like raise your hand and say, "I, I have to step off. I need to use the restroom. And I sat in this hospital bed in this very, very hot, hot set. It was an office that they converted to look like a hospital room. And I, I sat there and I sat there and I sat there and I, I didn't know that they had people that would stand in for me. I didn't know they had a second team it's called. So when they're lighting and setting up the shop, you can go and use the toilet. I didn't know. (laughs) And (laughs) finally I was like, I gotta go. I gotta go. And Hallie was like, go honey, you don't have to. So I stepped out, went to the bathroom. And when I came back, everybody was looking at me very strangely. And, And the AD pulled me aside, the assistant director and said, listen, if you have to use the restroom, you need to tell us, you know, we can't have you, we can't have you, you know, peeing in the bed. I was like, what? (laughs) Your stand-in had to crawl in. I was like, it was sweat. It was sweat. They thought, but they literally thought that I was like incontinent or something. Everyone was tiptoeing, afraid to tell me they thought I had pissed the bed. And it was sweat. And that poor stand-in, you know, got in and immediately was just like, (laughs)
0: well this uh this brings us to these uh really incredible last few years of of work for you and i want to lead into the mazel chapter with of course getting on on which you played the head nurse in this uh extended care award of older ladies there and it's a remake again of of a british series this ran for three seasons 2013 to 2015 and um Apparently you were chosen over 60 actresses for this part of, of Dawn. Um, And, uh, and you know, on paper, it would sound like it might not have been a wonderful experience only because you guys apparently had three and a half days to shoot each episode. You're having to do kind of really dramatic stuff on the regular for the first time that I, that I believe the first time viewership was never what it should have been for a show that was this good. And yet, when the plug was pulled after those 3 seasons you've said it was like the most devastating thing that ever happened so i would just wonder what made it so special
2: yeah that was soul crushing when that was canceled um you know i the, the way that happened was i was writing on a show called shameless which was a us version of the uk show doing that i met paul abbott who is the creator of the uk show and He also created a show called Linda Green that I started to redevelop for the U S with him and BBC America. And the women I met doing that, we worked for, I don't know, a year on that. And as it became clear, no one was buying our pitch. It wasn't happening. They said, Hey, would you audition for this thing called getting on? And I said, yes, I read about it in the trays. I think it's amazing. And was so excited to do it. I loved the British version and it was terrifying. Um, But it was, it was like summer camp and I was out of my head. I'd had a baby that was 2012. I had a baby in October and we shot the pilot in December. I was completely (laughs) insane, which probably helped the performance. Um, (laughs) But everyone, it was just this tight, tiny cast. We shot at an old hospital in Pasadena, in, in Altadena, Pasadena. And, you know, it was one place, one setting, one lighting setup. We shot it a lot like a play. We tried to go in order. It moved so fast because there was no light changes. That's where you lose a lot of time, having to change the scene and move to a different set. Our, our camera operator and DP were, were phenomenal. Um, Rodney Taylor you know, would would run and gun with us. He would adapt to what we we needed, find a way to make anything happen. It, it, it was just, Lori Metcalf is another genius. I'm not throwing that word around lightly. I just have been lucky in my career to work with so many, but she's like a, a jazz musician. I mean, her body is an instrument and you watch her and it's phenomenal. Um, she was phenomenal. Nisi Nash was so much fun. And we just we, I don't know, it was like boot camp. It was, it was only six episodes a season. We had barely any time to shoot them and no money. And I loved it so much. And when that got canceled, I I mean, I was a tiny bit broken and felt like that's it. I think I'm done. I was trying to develop this other thing for Fox with Alan Arkin. I thought maybe this is exciting. I wrote this weird thing with him playing my father, and Fox wouldn't pay him enough. They wouldn't pay Alan Arkin. I couldn't. I still can't. (laughs) Yeah. Serpentine, really? Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, And and between those two things not happening, I just kind of decided. I think I'm done. And I
0: seriously, that you were. Yeah, I moved to Barcelona.
2: I was done. I was going to do family guy. Yeah. And that's it.
0: And. Cause, Cause you can do that from anywhere. And I mean, why Barcelona? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> you have a better idea. I, yeah.
2: <laughs> I wanted a, I'd never done a year abroad at school. I wanted my kids to have an experience of, of being an outsider of kind of seeing it in a tiny way, what it would be like to be an immigrant and, and find their way in a new place. And, um, I thought about doing Budapest, but, but the language is so useless for them to, for them to learn. And I thought, you know, Spanish is a great, started Googling what places are good and, and Madrid versus Barcelona and Barcelona had this great school and I applied. And then I was like, if I get into school, then I'm going to do it. And they got in the school and My plan was to go for one year and I was going to write a play while I was there. And instead, we stayed for four and a half years and I was in two and a half, almost three plays instead of ever finishing mine.
0: (laughs) And where along the line, how long was it after you'd gotten there that you first hear again from Amy Sherman Palladino?
2: Before I left, Amy said, are you really moving to Barcelona? I was like, yeah, I'm really doing it. Really? When? (laughs) For how long? I was like, why? Why? She said, I've written this thing. Will you just read it? I was like, fine, I'll read it. And of course it was fucking great. I was like, great. (laughs) Um, So I flew to New York. I auditioned and then got it and thought, oh crap. Well, no big deal. I'm only going to be in Barcelona for one year. It'll be fine. I'll so I came back to the US shortly after moving there, shot the pilot and then and the rest is history it got picked mm-hmm. up to series and then it became kind of a nightmare of going back and forth. and so I kind of split my time. It was like you know six months in one place, maybe collectively six months in the other. And that's kind of how it worked out a little bit.
0: And is Bar- are you still partly living in Barcelona or not anymore? No yeah
2: pandemic kind of wiped that off the map for us. Yeah. My parents are in the states at the time, you know, Trump was still in office when we were coming mm-hmm. back into production. And I thought, I might not be able to get back into Spain. Like everything was mm-hmm. crazy with the the rules. He was closing borders. Everyone hated the US. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably still <laughs> present tense. Um, so I was just very nervous about leaving my children in Spain and not being able to see them. And God forbid there was an illness. And it just seemed... Yeah, it seemed like too much, and then my landlord wanted her apartment back. So I said, "This is a sign. <laughs> right. I'm gonna come back to the states." So we came back to the states, and here we
0: are. And with with this character, I mean, you say obviously the pilot, then they ordered series. But Susie, was it? It sounds like you recognized just even before you ever read a you know uh, audition that this was special. I mean, did you have to see your interaction with with Rachel? Uh, or whoever would be playing Midge to know that it was really going to work or, or did you know right away?
2: I knew right away that it was great. Same way when I read Family Guy and Getting On. I mean, I've been so lucky. It's insane. It really is insane. Um, I knew it was great and I knew this character was something I couldn't pass up because it's not a mom. It's not a fat sidekick. It's not a visual joke. And all of those things are great and fine. I am a mom. I am a fat sidekick. I can be a visual joke, but it's not what I want to spend my time. I don't want five years of it if I, if it get, you know, if it in success. And I knew that Susie was special and the show was special. And then when I read with Rachel, I knew she was special and our chemistry was special. And, and yeah, I, I, I had no idea how beautiful it would look that was a surprise. I knew Amy was a great director, but I didn't know she, she's like, you know, she's like a cinematographer in that way. She sees all of it in her head. Everything's like a choreographed dance. And it's, um, yeah, blessed, I think is the
0: word. And just when you're, when you're playing Susie, creating her early on, was it, did Amy suggest like, hey, think about this person or did you think about particular people or is it just sort of it doesn't have to be i guess but what was there somebody who influenced it
2: i mean she you know, again there's a lot of my grandmother in there just kind of this this survivor do what it takes put your head down and push through there's a line at the dmv i don't see it go <laughs> straight to the front um you know it's really that same kind of personality that is, I think, drives a lot of my characters. I yeah. think getting yeah. on, I think all of them, I, I there's a little bit of that in there, and um, yeah, I, I I just, I I think my reading with Rachel, the first shot, is pretty much what I'm doing. She she may have gotten a little more. There's there's probably a little more bounce and a little more quickness and bite to, you know, as you get in the rhythm to, to the voice and stuff. But, but for the most part, I don't, I don't know that she's changed. I think she's, she's, she's opened up, which is thanks to the writing. She's been allowed to kind of be cracked open and, and, and her, more vulnerable and, and allowing herself to be hurt, which is really nice that she's growing that way.
0: Well, and there, it seems like though, that, as you say, there was that sort of thesis statement right at the beginning where, she says something like, "In the first season, I don't mind being alone. I just don't want to be insignificant." That does seem to have, you know, really nailed what she's about. Like she, right? I mean,
2: absolutely. And it's funny, people always say, "How similar are you with the character?" And I say that's the biggest point of differences. Yeah. I also don't want to be insignificant, but I do mind being alone. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. I'm a needy actor, and I I need. <laughs> I do need people and no- some noise around me, and 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 warmth and and arms around me. At the end of the day, it's I, I can't do it alone, like Susie can.
0: Well, and I do love though where you say it, you've also talked about Lady and the Tramp as a reference, where there's sort of this. First of all, I guess the the visuals of the characters of Midge and uh, Susie, but also the fact that um, there's a bit of a platonic love story, right? And also. I don't know. Susie, to me, if there's any other character in, in screen history who she reminds me of, it's probably the the Charlie Chaplin uh, tramp, right? I mean, in some way, not comfortable in her own in the world, in her own uh, in her clothing, That's in her own skin. That's
2: interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think she's 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 not comfortable in her own skin, which is kind of why she, she, she puts on an outer skin. I think the leather jacket is so telling that, that this kind of armor that she requires and a hat and keeping her head down and feeling protected. And yet she is like a bull and not afraid. Sometimes she should be <laughs> more afraid, but yeah, it is. It is the, 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 love story at the heart of this show. It's not, in my opinion, Lenny, Bruce and Midge or Joel and Midge or any guy. I, it's it's Susie and Midge or Smidge as we like to call them. <laughs> it's well, like, it's a romance. It's really, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very deep, interesting relationship, which, which is what I love. I love working with Rachel doing it.
0: Well, just the last thing, I wonder if you can kind of give your outlook at the moment. We're coming off you know, this is a character who's always surprising us, whether it's we find out she has a law degree as just like a passing reference yeah. or, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, she's already familiar with the gay bars that Midge wants to take. All these different surprises. Um, but in this fourth season, as as you've referenced, I mean, we've seen elements of her that I don't think we've ever seen before, particularly in the third episode of this fourth season, which I volunteer for you to submit for your Emmy episode, because I just think it's so unbelievable where this is where Susie's lost someone, I guess, really for the first time. And this is your, um, you know, your co-star Brian Tarantina and we're just seeing the way that she grieves and the eulogy and, and funny, but sad. And I, I guess I just wonder anything you want to say about that in this fourth season and where we have left her as the season came to an end. The thing that's interesting is people
2: ask, wait, so she has a law degree. So are you a lawyer? And it's like, <laughs> I don't fucking know. Amy, <laughs> Amy writes the stuff and I say it. And then people in press and fans ask me and it's like, I, people want to know about her sexuality. People want to know about. It. And I was like, I know what I am given so mm-hmm. far. And that's it. I have no no future plans and. I think that's cool. I like that it it keeps me on my toes and it keeps everything very fresh for me not, not having so many clues. And it helps with the character because she's so guarded that it makes sense that she would have pushed so much down that maybe she doesn't even remember these things about herself. I kind of like that. Um, but the eulogy, that was so hard. That was the hardest. The whole season was so hard. And that was so, so hard. It was... Around the time, I will probably get emotional talking about it. Um, that my very dear friend Katie Lazarus passed away, um, and she—that was crushing. That was really, really hard for me. And it's been—it's—it's it's been about a year. And Amy also knew Katie. Amy had a very long twenty-plus years relationship with Brian Tarantina. I knew Brian. You know, honestly as a colleague, you know, we never hung out. I didn't know anything about his personal life and we knew just enough to work together and laugh our asses off on set. And that's about it. Um, But Amy knew Katie a little bit and she knew what the loss meant to me. And when she wrote that thing, she wrote it, I think with that in mind, and there's a lot in there that was very specific and very, um, dead on for Katie's experience. And, and also my grandmother, I mean, those were the two biggest losses that, that I felt that really hurt me a lot. And that was so hard. That was the hardest day. And I wasn't sure it was pages and pages and pages of dialogue. And I was so nervous. I said, can we get a teleprompter? And they're like, no, we don't use (laughs) teleprompters. Can we please, can we please? And she said, okay, well, we'll have one on hand. And then I I just studied and studied and we didn't need it. And you can't really use a tele, you can't read that (laughs) when you're in it, but, but it was so hard. And I told myself, if you can do this, if you can get through this, nail these lines and give a good performance, you can have McDonald's today. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. Yeah. That was like what my parents used to use as a dangled carrot. And that's what I did. I said, I'm going to, if you do this, you can have one of everything from McDonald's tonight for dinner. <laughs> and we got to the location and we had to be out at 3 p.m. or something. And I, I fucking nailed it. I was so happy. And then of course we had to do other coverage. Now let's do it from this. Now let's do it. And I was like, what? I have to do I, again, I want
0: again, my McNuggets. Again? Yeah. <laughs>
2: But we did it and we got out of there in time and everybody on the crew knew I was going to let myself have McDonald's if I (laughs) did this. So, you know, when we finished, everybody was like, get her to McDonald's, get her to McDonald's.
0: (laughs) That's great. I
2: did. I had one of everything. Awesome. But yeah, it was, it was so painful and it was so beautifully written by Amy and, and the hardest thing I've ever done.
0: Well, you did a beautiful job, and it's always been so fun to watch you. Going back to when I was a kid watching Mad TV, so thank you for all that, and and thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?